Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Patrick Brown has been disqualified from running in the federal conservative leadership race. What happened? Well, try to dissect that for you. Canada is first to sign off on Finland and Sweden's accession to join NATO. In the past, Canada's rather been slow off NATO initiatives, but uh, is this an effort to maybe change that whole thing? And the Ford government is being urged to extend paid sick leave due to the growing concerns about another COVID wave. Dr. Ahmed Aria joins us to discuss that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Here's a headline we weren't expecting today. The uh, Patrick Brown campaign says it's consulting its legal team after uh, Brown has been kicked out of the race to lead the federal conservative party. Karen Rebo has a report. Ian Brody says only that the Conservative Party learned of serious allegations of wrongdoing by the Brown campaign related to federal election financing rules. He said the chief returning officer told Brown about the concerns and gave him time to respond, but that the response was not satisfactory. The Brown campaign says the decision to boot him from the race is reprehensible and came without evidence or full details. It adds such undemocratic behavior breaks faith with hundreds of thousands of Canadians who embraced Patrick Brown's vision of a modern, inclusive Conservative Party. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. So what's going on? Uh, uh, to try to shed some light on this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Peggy Nash. Peggy, of course, is a former NDP finance critic and author of the book Women Winning Office, an activist guide to getting elected. Uh, Peggy, great to have you back on. Uh, I didn't see this coming, did you? Oh, no, I didn't. I I saw it last night, like... Uh... Uh, other people who who happen to be checking their Twitter feed <laughs> in the late hours, and it it really came out of nowhere. It's it's uh, it's quite shocking. I don't remember this happening before. Well, and, and again, just a point of clarification because this is one of the things because uh, I heard about it late last night, just as you did. Uh, that they say that because of allegations, he's been booted out. Is, is the premise here that you're guilty until proven innocent? Well, I'm sure that's what the Brown campaign is asking. It, it's really, there's so much that is unclear about this. Yeah. We don't know specifically what the allegations are. Uh, that's what Brown is saying. It was an anonymous complaint. Um, we, we, it, it's some financial allegation, but that could mean many, many different things. People are speculating, and it, it really is important for the Conservative Party to shed some light on this because it's an issue of trust. People are speculating that perhaps this is the party throwing the campaign to Polyev, that he didn't have it wrapped up, and so uh, they want to disqualify his major opponent. There's all kinds of theories out there. And really to to um, add transparency and really make this process credible, they need to be more specific about what this entails. Now, they've said, the Conservatives have said that they are forwarding this information to Elections Canada, but uh, with no timeline, uh, we don't know when they're going to report back. And part of the problem, Bill, is that some of the ballots have already gone out. Yeah. And Patrick Brown's name is on the ballot. And so what's going to happen to those voters if they cast their vote for Brown and, and or have cast their vote? And now they find out he's not in the race. Will he be readmitted? Uh, we just don't know enough about this. Yeah, and that's one of the other things that I found, uh, you know, interesting about this. Uh, you know, they said they forwarded all this on to Elections Canada, but they've already made a decision. 
So, so why are they doing that? And they've already, you know, he's been condemned. Boom, you're out of the race. Uh, so I don't know what role Elections Canada is going to play in this. But, you know, the other element to this, and you and I have talked about this in the past, though, Peggy, there's always going to be some back and forth during the leadership campaigns, anytime anybody's running for office, about how you sell memberships to who you sell memberships, etc. you know, campaign contributions. That's always out there. And, and there's always going to be some finger pointing and some accusations made. But I don't remember ever uh, somebody getting booted out uh, based on some, uh, what he says is allegations. Well, this is it. They're uh, apparently saying that, according to Ian Brody's public statement, which is, is a little cryptic still, he's saying that there were allegations, they presented them to the Brown campaign and gave him time to respond, and they did not respond in an adequate fashion. But the Brown campaign is saying this was a committee that met in secret, behind closed doors, he was not represented, and he's saying that he, he provided the information that they asked for. They're saying it's not enough. Who really knows here? And as long as there is so much ambiguity and mystery around this, it fosters and fuels all kinds of, of conspiracies and accusations of unfairness. So the Conservative Party really needs to offer some transparency here. Well, because there have been, let's use the word again, allegations uh, about uh, certain key members in the upper echelons of the Conservative Party favoring Pierre Polyev and, and stacking mm -hmm. the deck. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and then and everybody says, oh, no, that would never happen in a process like this. And now all of a sudden one of his, his key opponents gets booted out of the race. You have to wonder, you know, where the smoke is fire. Yes, this is exactly the problem. And, you know, in the past, the Conservatives have um, really painted the Liberals as as uh, uh, corrupt. And, you know, they had the whole sponsorship scandal. Uh, and they have tried to to portray themselves as more ethical, as more accountable. And this really damages any attempt to do that. And it, it, it fosters mistrust. And that's the last thing you want is a, a, a new leader, whoever it is, to get elected with this cloud of somehow bias or, or rigging going on for the, for the campaign. It's, it's just a bad look for them. And, and frankly, it makes them look like not serious contenders for any kind of power in the future. Yeah, which is exactly not the message, I guess, they want to be sending out. Well, we're going to hope to get some clarity on this later on today. But, uh, Peggy, thanks for jumping in with us for a little bit here today. And I'm sure we'll carry on this conversation when we get some more details, or not, I guess, in the okay, days ahead. Okay, will do. <laughs> Take care, Peggy. Peggy Nash, uh, former NDP finance critic, of course, uh, commenting on Patrick Brown being booted out of the conservative uh, leadership race. And he is not going quietly into that good night. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to start again with the, the news about Canada's involvement uh, with the uh, endorsement, of course, of uh, two new members of NATO. As it turned out, uh, Canada was uh, first to ratify the Finland and Sweden accession to join NATO. Charles Didledesme has more details for us. 
The 30 NATO allies have signed off on the accession protocols for Sweden and Finland, sending the membership bids of the two nations to the alliance capitals for approval. The move further increases Russia's strategic isolation in the wake of its invasion of neighbouring Ukraine in February and military struggles there since. Despite the alliance agreement on the new membership bids, parliamentary approval in member state Turkey could still pose problems for Sweden and Finland's final inclusion as members. I'm Charles de Ledesma. So let's talk about the implications of this uh, strategically, especially for NATO, and, uh, and Canada's involvement in this too. And to do so, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Christian Luprecht, who is the professor at both Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. He's also a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, good morning, Bill. Let me ask you, Canada's been accused in the past of, of being a little slow out of the gate on a lot of NATO initiatives. Uh, and, and this, for Canada to be first out of the gate here, is, is this a concerted effort here to try to change that 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 perception and, and, and not necessarily take the lead, but be one of the, 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 the people that are initiating a lot of this stuff? Well, we've generally been quite doing quite well, especially on this government, at being performative. And so I think, you know, this is Canada has a hard time showing up in other ways uh, at NATO these days in terms of lack of capabilities and uh, a lack of commitments that it is able to make as a result. Uh, and so I guess this is one way that the government tries to shine. Uh, but at the same time, I think this is actually uh, the government trying to avoid a debate in Canada. Uh, this is a government that uh, has tried to avoid serious debate on defense issues. I'm not sure to what extent it is really interested in the defense portfolio. Portfolio. There's a substantial component of its electorate that is not favorably disposed to defense to begin with. Uh, and so rather than having a democratic debate about the value of NATO, the value of NATO expansion, uh, and that might then perhaps lead to a broader debate about uh, what sort of capabilities and commitments Canada has to the alliance, let alone to an expanded alliance and the uh, contributions that Canada in particular might be able to make uh, uh, to value added of the defense of Sweden and Finland, countries that have uh, somewhat uh, similar climates, countries with which we have a lot of affinity in terms of the Arctic Council, um, and having sort of a broader debate in Parliament that might actually get Canadians interested. I think this is actually the government trying to expedite the process precisely because it's trying to avoid a broader informed democratic debate about NATO, about NATO accession, and about defense um, and, and, and Canada's uh, obligations. I know that was addressed, I guess, in at least in their fashion. Anyway, they tried to address that yesterday. And as they mentioned, uh, in May, there was a House Public Safety and National Security Committee uh, motion that was adopted uh, expressing strong support for the two Scandinavian countries and, and uh, asking NATO members to approve it. So I guess, I guess they're looking at it that way and say, look, check, we've checked that box. We've already got parliamentary approval on this. We don't need a debate. Uh, but, but, but clearly, that's, that's their rationalization of it, whether or not it's effective or not. Uh, I, I see your point, and I think it's a very legitimate point that we need to have a discussion, a more broad discussion in Parliament about exactly what we are doing in NATO. 
Well, because what it suggests, if we're having two new countries join, countries that have been close Western partners for decades, it suggests that the security environment has fundamentally changed and that indeed we live in a much more dangerous and much more challenging world and that that would require perhaps a shift in both Canadian posture as well as Canadian strategy of how we can ensure to uh, to assert Canadian interests. Uh, but that sort of conversation, I think, would be a difficult conversation because any time we have a conversation about foreign policy in this country, it is ultimately going to be divisive. We live in a very diverse country um, with many different constituencies that have very different ideas about what our foreign policy could and should be. And we've spent decades essentially drafting behind the undisputed leader of uh, the so-called free world, the United States. But it's increasingly apparent that the United States' interests and also their ability to commit resources are somewhat diverging from those of sort of the traditional sort of Western alliance. Um, but uh, and that might mean that we might actually need to have a more autonomous, more robust, more independent uh, foreign and defense policy. Uh, but I think uh, government, not just this government, but I think more broadly, um, uh, also uh, generally political parties don't have a keen interest in having that sort of debate precisely because they know that A, it's divisive uh, and B, that there's no votes to be had on foreign policy. So easier to get it over with quickly uh, so that they can focus on things that they believe mat actually matter to their electorates. And, and that's maybe a lot of the greater tragedies here, isn't it, Professor? I mean, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. In uh, I, Well, go back however many federal elections you want. Foreign policy has hardly ever uh, been a factor in any of those policies, any of those elections, rather. Uh, but this is not business as usual. I mean, look at what's happened in the last six months uh, in, in Europe, certainly down in, 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 uh, in Asia, Southeast Asia as well. There's a lot going on here right now, and Canada is involved in this. And, and we need to have that discussion, don't we, about where we're going and just what our commitment should be. Well, look, if we had a serious debate about foreign policy, that would inherently lead to a debate about energy policy. Uh, gas prices in Europe are up 700 uh, percent since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it's it's uh, it's throwing Europe into a, a prospectively deep recession that is inherently not in Canada's interests. Uh, but having a debate about energy security and uh, and resilience in Europe would inherently open up a can of worms for the federal government in terms of our obligations um, as the NATO member with the third largest natural gas reserves in the alliance after the United States and Norway uh, and the obligations that we might actually have to export gas uh, to our allies in Europe. But, you know, as I often say, when you have friends like Canada, uh, you know, who really needs enemies in Europe? And I think the, the challenge is that Canada, uh, for, for domestic political reasons, is unwilling to have that conversation. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's causing us uh, serious credibility issues uh, to the point of obsolescence uh, among our allies. So, you know, this is why we get posturing from the federal government about, look, we're the first country to uh, uh, to, to sign on to uh, the accession of two new members. Uh, but at the same time, we're completely unwilling to have the political debate um, in terms of foreign policy and energy security implications of what that might actually mean if Canada was serious about meeting its obligations to alliance uh, allies and partners. Well, to that point then, Professor, uh, there's also announced yesterday, as you know, that uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie is uh, going to attend the G20 meeting coming up in Bali uh, later this week. Uh, Previously, of course, they had walked out any time there was a Russian delegation uh, anywhere. Uh, Canadian officials have done that. She's going to be there. Uh, what would you anticipate if, if, in fact, the government had 
had made a decision that they needed to be more active and proactive in, in what's going on. Uh, G20 might be a platform for them to do that, or are they just, are we going there as spectators? So it's great that our foreign minister is actually showing up. You know, for for the past two decades, I've sort of had the impression that most politicians in Ottawa don't even know how to spell most of the countries in the region. Um, uh, governments for 20 years have been largely absent from the Indo-Pacific when it comes to key political meetings and key political decision making, um, in part because they didn't see it as a key strategic priority that our relationship with the US and with Europe strategically had always been seen as a um, as a uh, as a higher priority, and that Canada really didn't have much of a dog in the in the race in the um, in the Indo Pacific, but. Uh, Indonesia is ultimately a key player in that region. Uh, it's a very difficult political relationship for our allies and partners, such as Australia and Japan. Um, but it's a relationship that's very important in terms of making the region work and for stability in the region. Um, it provides an opportunity for Canada perhaps to focus on things other than China uh, and the rather sort of homeopathic policies position that the government has been driving on China. And look, the G20 is a really interesting forum. You might argue it is the only real functional remaining forum on global governance where a few things do get done. It has important uh, priorities that align with the government's priorities. So that's the digital transition uh, as well as the green transition. And look at the past, current and next presidency, uh, Brazil, Indonesia, India. Uh, these are all countries that are critical to the future of global governance. And so um, and they're all very difficult political relationships. So I think it's important for Canada uh, to be fully on board with G20 conversations. And rather than this posturing about, well, we're not going to go to a meeting where the Russians are present. If we're serious, then we should initiate an exclusion of the Russians from the G20 with our allies and partners. Um, but of course, Canada doesn't want to initiate that sort of conversation because that would mean we'd have to take a principal stand on Russia rather than a performative stance. And so if we're not serious about taking a principal stand, uh, then ultimately we got to live with all the members that there are and make the best of it. And look, the U.S. is driving a key policy issue at the G20, which is grain exports uh, through the Black Sea from Ukraine. And so if we can get the other 19 members on board and actually find some agreement on that, I think the whole world would be better off. Well, exactly. And, and, and to take an active role in a situation like that, uh, you, you point about the exclusion of Russia from the G20 is, is not a new idea. President Biden has talked about that. Other leaders have talked about that. Uh, what's, what's the feasibility, you think, Professor, of that actually happening? Uh, well, it's going to be difficult because the country, several of the countries that are at this meeting, I mean, we know that India has been uh, sympathetic to Russia and been buying up cheap Russian oil uh, in, uh, in, 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 in large quantities. Um, both Indonesia and Brazil have been uh, sitting on the fence when it comes to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as has much of the developed world. So there's not going to be, I think, uh, agreement at the G20 about excluding Russia. But of course, that's all the more the reason why we need to show up to these types of forums and actually be 
be seen as a serious player. The problem is in the G20 that Canada isn't really considered a serious player because it's been absent uh, from the Indo-Pacific for for so long. So Canada will first and foremost have to reestablish its credibility and it will have to uh, put its stakes in the ground that when it comes to the Indo-Pacific, we don't just run to our partners and allies every time we have a problem. And for instance, Canadians get, um, get kidnapped for political reasons by China and all of a sudden we want their support, we actually need to understand what the requirements of our allies and partners in the region are and actually show up and support those and shore those up. And then we can actually maybe arrive at a broader consensus about what might actually be good, not just for Canada, but actually good uh, for some of the more challenging political relationships, such as those with India, Brazil and Indonesia. So to that end, uh, what, what do we need to do? I mean, we're showing up. That's great. But as you say, that's, that's only the first step. Uh, taking a more proactive role, I mean, in, in, in situations like that and trying to develop those relationships. Because as we've talked about in the past, of course, we know there's a power tug of war going on in that area. Uh, China trying to exert their influence across that whole region. And, and of course, the other the United States and the other NATO countries, for that matter, uh, are trying to squeeze in there as well. Canada has a role to play, I would think, in that debate, don't they? Uh, well, certainly we can start by showing that uh, we take Indonesia seriously and we consider it a serious and important partner. I mean, uh, it, is, uh, it, it, is, it is a massive country at, uh, what, 200 million people. It is uh, the largest Muslim country. Um, uh, so uh, in, in that sense alone, it is a key partner. The next uh, president of the presidency of the G7 is going to be India, a country that is sympathetic to Western ideas, but as we see now, Russia is very much also driving an independent and sovereign foreign policy. Uh, so these are countries that we need to engage with bilaterally, but it's also countries where we need to engage with multilaterally and where we need to leverage our relationships through the Five Eyes, uh, through the G7, uh, through the increased interest by NATO in the Indo-Pacific uh, in order to nudge these countries to um, uh, to to toe a line uh, that is both aligned with our own interests but also aligned with interests of global governance and better global governance because we've all seen that the United Nations has uh, effectively been completely imperiled by paralysis from China and from Russia. Uh, so this is a form that ultimately we need to make work um, if we're serious about actually trying to improve overall outcomes for the planet. And it's a form where we're actually we can get a agreements on, on things such as sort of digitization and on things on uh, such as green energy. These are all countries that are bedeviled by pollution uh, in a way that is much more serious than, uh, than Canada, for instance. And so um, we can hopefully nudge them in the right direction and in return, uh, get them to come on board when it comes to containing bad behavior by Russia, because uh, these countries also want to rein in bad behavior by China. So they know that the norms that we set here are important. Uh, but as I say, these are hard conversations. You have to work multilaterally. And I often get the sense that um, within Ottawa, we don't have the patience or the bandwidth to have long, hard, multi-year conversations in terms of these multilateral fora. We always want to do everything quickly and easily. And ideally, we want to draft behind our allies rather than taking leadership roles. So I think here's an opportunity, A, to show up and B, to actually start making some real commitments um, to, uh, to the region um, in order to rebuild our credibility and our visibility. Well, we'll be watching closely to see what happens in Bali later this week. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for this today. It's been my pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Have a great morning. Take
You too. Professor Christian Luprek uh, from Royal Military College, of course, and Queen's University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is an ongoing problem. And, and like so many other things, of course, the pandemic over the last two and a half years or so has exacerbated the concern about long-term care facilities and our healthcare system in general. Well, and we've talked about, you know, these people that are serving us uh, and serving the frail and the elderly. They're our healthcare heroes. We heard that so many times, and it's true. But now it's time for the provincial government to uh, start, you know, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Uh, doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers are making a demand now that Ontario provide workers with 10 permanent paid sick days. Now, this comes as the province's temporary days off policy is set to expire in just a couple of weeks at the end of this month. Global's Brianna Carnegie has details. Over 160 physicians, nurses and other healthcare workers are sending a message to the province through an open letter calling for legislation that would give 10 paid sick days to all workers. Without it, they say their health will suffer and more people will end up in the hospital with COVID-19. Some who signed the letter tell the Star it's unacceptable this has not yet happened two years into the pandemic. They're trying to prepare for a seventh wave this fall. Three temporary paid sick days are currently available through the Worker Income Protection Benefit, but that's set to expire at the end of July. When it launched in April of last year, there was criticism. More days are needed, and it should have happened sooner. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So, uh, yeah, it's an old issue, but it's an old issue because the government hasn't dealt with it properly. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Amit Arya, who is the palliative care lead with Kensington Gardens Long-Term Care and also a member of the Decent Work and Health Network. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Bill. Let's uh, talk about this, and I I know this is going to kind of sound like, you know, Groundhog Day and deja vu all over again, because I think you and I started talking about this two and a half years ago uh, when the pandemic hit, and and it wasn't even a new issue then. Uh, Right. You know, this is is how this government is treating our quote-unquote healthcare heroes. Uh, They're limited to a 1% raise at any kind of a contract negotiation that's going to go on. Uh, They don't get the paid sick days that they need. People are leaving this profession, this vocation, uh, because of the pressure pressure and stress that they're under right now. Uh, Common sense would indicate, doctor, that they have to do something about it, yet they don't. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain why they're not doing something about this. And if I can broaden out the conversation, uh, which you brought up, uh, Bill, some very important points you brought up. Um, You know, it just simply doesn't make sense that we're actually uh, allowing people or, you know, forcing people in a way to go to work sick, because of course, this gets other people sick, it risks long term disability due to infection, and now even reinfection with COVID-19. And if we provide not just healthcare workers, but all workers paid sick days. It means that you can get time off uh, when you're ill with any illness. And especially right now we're dealing with COVID-19, but it could be any illness. You could look after your family member when they're sick as well. And it also means that you can go and get, uh, you know, take time off and afford time off to go and get that very important uh, third dose. And as we know, many people are advocating for broadening the criteria for first, you know, for fourth doses right now, but you can go and get boosted, which will keep you safe and keep your community safe. And all add that i mean speaking about healthcare being overwhelmed but let's also look at you know businesses right now many businesses are suffering from understaffing uh, we're seeing chaos at the airport and we know that at least uh, you know a significant proportion of this is being driven through uncontrolled workplace transmission of covid-19 so paid sick days are a labor right which will of course keep workers safe and healthy and it will also keep uh, you know it'll protect the economy and you know protect the healthcare system well and and that 
was part of the message, at least from the, the you know the Ontario Chief Medical Officer uh, when he was talking to us about this uh, back in those days. Uh, if you're sick, stay home. Uh, that was it. And, oh, that makes all kinds of sense. But with the but you know if they're going to let this expire at the end of July, though, Doctor, essentially they're saying it doesn't much matter anymore. If you're sick, you have to go to work uh, because, as you know, there's an awful lot of people that are on contract situation. You don't go to work, you don't get paid. And, and that's only exacerbating the problem we're already having right now with the, the inflationary impact that we're having on everybody's uh, lives these days. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. And, uh, you know, paid sick days are just part of one policy uh, that we need to provide to workers um, to protect them in the workplace and obviously protect communities from the spread of COVID-19. I wanted to really emphasize for people who are listening to the program that although we're not in a situation as we were in the pre-vaccine era in 2020, where we need capacity restrictions or lockdowns, COVID-19 is still an illness which is causing significant disability and even death uh, right here in Ontario, right here in Canada. Canada. And this means that we need to sort of look at measures that we can employ uh, to protect people and protect those who are vulnerable at this time. Paid sick days, as we mentioned, is definitely one of those possibilities. But there's other things such as providing people uh, permanent jobs, uh, decent wages. All those things are very, very important. Uh, and we've seen also time and time through the pandemic that actually people who are low income workers, people who belong to racialized communities are disproportionately impacted. And in fact, just yesterday, there was some uh, data that came out in the Toronto Star, which showed that even through the Omicron wave, it's shocking, of course, but not surprising at this point, lower income Ontarians actually died at, at higher rates. So we know that this pandemic is completely driven by socioeconomic factors, and we need to address those socioeconomic factors in order to manage the, the, you know, the impacts of the pandemic. How frustrated are you uh, at this point because of the promises made, promises unkept? Because uh, that's a phrase I know that the Premier loves to use a lot of the time. Uh, you know, we're going to look after these people. You know, we're going to put a ring around long-term care facilities. We're going to help these workers. We're going to train new people uh, to go in there. And, and it's just not happening. To uh, it, A lot of talk here, not a whole lot of action in situations like this. And as we say, as, as we're sitting here talking right now, people are leaving the industry. They simply say, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's very, very true. And I, I only have to look at, you know, my colleagues who work in the nursing profession uh, to share stories about how dire the situation is in healthcare. And we feel bad, I'll be honest, just sharing bad news all the time. I, I can really say that, you know, my colleagues who work in healthcare are remarkable human beings who go out of their way to provide such compassionate uh, care to the people that they serve. But, you know, the conditions of work have not really been addressed in healthcare and even outside of healthcare. So you spoke about Bill 124 earlier, which is uh, really, uh, you know, repressive legislation against nurses, which caps their wages or their wage increase at 1%. And we all know inflation is much higher than 1% at this point in time. So effectively, it's a pay cut. Uh, understaffing is definitely a significant issue. And there's lots of health workers who are off sick uh, with uh, either exposure to COVID-19 or they've contracted COVID-19 themselves. And, uh, you know, at this point in time, our healthcare system is definitely in crisis because we're seeing, you know, I'll share with you, 5 million Canadians actually don't have a family physician. And, uh, you know, we need to look at, you know, how we can actually rebuild our entire healthcare system. But some of this starts with, um, you know, looking at, uh, once again, labor issues and recognizing that labor is a determinant of health. So what that means is that if we improve working conditions, if we keep our health workers healthy, this means that we'll have, a, a, of course, a much better functioning healthcare system. And if we look at essential workers in general, as you've mentioned, health workers and essential workers have been called heroes through this pandemic. 
pandemic, and it's time to really stop the posturing, but also take action to improve working conditions. And all of this is better for us because it will, of course, keep businesses open. It will avoid this chaos that we're seeing at the airport. And um, it will once again allow society to stay open and protect our healthcare system at the same time. Let's put this into the context of, especially in light of the fact that, you know, we're hearing more and more information, even in the last couple of days, doctor, uh, about another wave of COVID-19 this summer. I, I know that, you know, they had talked about, well, maybe in the fall when, you know, we, we start going back in the houses and back into school and everything, we might see an uptick. It's starting already. Uh, and I, I, my, my understanding from what I've read anyway, is this one, maybe even two variants that seem to be circulating right now. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting, and I don't think anybody's suggesting, that we're going to be back the way we were two years ago. Uh, but this is, if we're going to get more cases and more people are going to contract this, you, that's going to put pressure on an already a healthcare system that's already in a very dire circumstance. Yeah, I mean, that's so very true. Um, and uh, I, I think at this point, um, it is, I mean, you asked me about this earlier, Bill, about how I'm feeling and how, how you know, my colleagues are feeling. And it's incredibly frustrating at this point in time to sort of um, be in this situation, uh, because, you know, you're very right, we're not in 2020, we actually have the tools and the resources to implement those tools to, you know, once again, manage this and limit the, you know, the disability and the death that's being caused by COVID to protect our health system at the same time and keep society open. So yeah, you're very right. I mean, I think at this point in time, we will be seeing waves perhaps you know, three or four times a year, we will be seeing not just infections, but reinfections with COVID-19, where we know that the chance of, um, you know, any complication or and even death is higher with reinfection. And the messaging that people are hearing, unfortunately, is that actually the pandemic is over. And that's actually far from the truth. So we need our governments not just to like, you know, not just to like, you know, just come out of the, you know, like, you know, just emerge out of hiding at this point in time, to be very frank, and I'm speaking about the provincial government there. But we need them to kind of provide everyone with clear messaging that no, the pandemic is not over. This is what you need to do. This is how, how you can actually do your own risk assessment. But we need them to take measures to protect communities, to keep people safe and protect our healthcare system. And of course, once again, workplaces have consistently been a, 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 a significant source of transmission and it's led to um, a higher death rate even now. We know in, um, you know, in, in lower income communities, in, uh, you know, for Ontarians that live in poverty, for people who are racialized and we need to take action such as implementing 10 permanent paid sick days, uh, looking at decent wages for everyone uh, in, in order to protect us all. And you know, I've talked about this many times over the last couple of years here in these pandemics and lockdowns, uh, wanting a government to be proactive instead of reactive. And, and, and again, I, you know, I'm not trying to be the voice of doom here, but we know that there are more variants. We know that there's an uptick in cases right now. There's even some anecdotal discussions, as you know, doctor, about starting to wear masks again. Uh, just right. to be on the safe side, to make sure this thing doesn't get out of hand. Uh, do the government not see these signs, these these warning signs that say maybe maybe we better get back on the ball here and look after this before it starts to overwhelm us again? You know, it's 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 hard for me to really say what's going on in the inner workings uh, of, of of the government, but I'm really just to be honest, flabbergasted as to why they're not 
you know, paying attention to some of this and, uh, you know, once again, you know, telling the public about their risk and what needs to be done and taking appropriate action proactively, as you mentioned, Bill, I, I, I don't have an answer. And I think re- what this really points to is that, you know, once again, a lot of the suffering that we're seeing as health workers uh, is, is, is unnecessary. And I'll even broaden that, you know, when we're seeing, once again, as I mentioned it before, I think this needs to be addressed. When we're seeing businesses uh, suffering because of understaffing, we're seeing airports in chaos, you know, like a lot of this is preventable because we have the tools and the resources uh, to control COVID-19. So once again, it may be something political. Uh, I'm somebody who believes in the science and believes in equity. So I can't really answer why the government is 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 not taking appropriate and proactive action, knowing that they like you know we actually have the tools on how to manage this well. Well, exactly, and we know that uh, that you know the sick day process here is part of the solution here. Uh, you know, Labor Minister Monty McNaughton is back in the same portfolio. We'd like to see him address this. This is a new health minister now. Uh, Sylvia Jones has taken over from Christine Elliott, and we'd like to think that, that they're, they're going to be approachable about uh, these sorts of issues right now, uh, because this can cascade pretty quickly, as we've seen, as you mentioned, with new cases, uh, pressure on healthcare systems, uh, people getting sick. You know, you, you want to go into the hospital and, and you'll, well, you know, there's 25 people sick today. They're not there. Uh, that's when surgeries start getting postponed, and 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 it's a it's a, a quagmire that we really don't want to get ourselves involved in here. And I'm not suggesting this is the solution that's going to make everything better, but it's a big part of it. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely the case. Uh, I can share with you that uh, I mean o- only actually 42% of workers in Canada have access to paid sick leave, and that number drops to 10%. For low-wage workers, uh, actually, so I mean, really moving towards uh, greater labor justice and uh, racial justice once again, because racialized groups are impacted more by the lack of paid sick days, would be something that uh, I feel that the Ontario government should consider as a top priority uh, at this point in time, and um, you know, something that would be very, very important because we do have a severely strained healthcare system at this point in time. So where do we go from here? I mean, the government's not sitting right now, but uh, my understanding is that they can do this at the stroke of a pen. They don't have to introduce legislation necessarily. This is a government policy that, first of all, should be extended, uh, and they must be able to do that uh, because it's going to expire in a couple of weeks. Uh, But at the same time, I'm not even hearing a discussion about doing this. There's a cost to it, but do they not understand that there's a cost to not doing it too? Yeah, I mean, you bring up some 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 very important points. And I wanted to add that actually, uh, 10 paid sick days uh, have been recommended by many people. I mean, the federal government has actually recommended yeah. that, the you know, the provinces, uh, you know, legislate this and they have legislated this from what I understand, although there are some uh, problems with, uh, you know, their plan, but they have legislated this for, you know, people who are employed by the federal government. Uh, in terms of costs, I think that's something that I wanted to address, because we have data actually showing that you know, there's a higher cost, and you've mentioned this bill, so I wanted to elaborate on this, that there's a higher cost to not legislating 10 paid sick days. So uh, there's a study from the Centre for Future Work, which actually has shown that 10 paid sick days increases overall business costs by just one-fifth of one percent. One-fifth of one percent. And actually, many small businesses are actually supporting paid sick days because it's not just about showing up to the office, showing up to work. It's about actually being healthy and productive, right? And, you know, not spreading, once again, uh, contagious illnesses at this point in time with COVID through the, you know, in the workplace. And actually, um, 
paid sick days reduce the you know the chance of workers leaving a job by 25% which actually saves money for businesses due to reduced turnover so time and time again we actually know this actually going to work sick which is a phenomenon called presenteeism actually costs more for the economy uh, you know damages businesses more uh, due to lost productivity right so the, the you know the cost of presenteeism is actually higher than the cost of um, of, of absenteeism and actually us research suggests that it could be as much as 10 times higher in terms of the cost. So it just totally makes sense that we do this for healthcare and for the economy. So I, I once again, I, I don't have the answer as to why, you know, the government is not doing this. There's, I mean, they claimed during their election campaign that they would support workers, but, um, you know, I, 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 I don't have the answer, Bill, as to why they're not prioritizing paid sick days. Well, it's it's an awfully frustrating situation, and at least I, I I want to have that dialogue here and make people aware of what's actually going on here, and and hopefully the government will respond in the next couple of days. Uh, doctor, I, we got to leave it here. We're just about out of time, but I thank you again for the time today, and uh, let's stay in touch and just uh, see how this thing develops over the next few days. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. Take care. Dr. Amit Arya, palliative care physician uh, with the Kensington Gardens Long-Term Care Facility. He's also a member of the uh, Decent Work and Health Network. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.